people don't want to be on a losing team yeah. and get their evaluation at the end of the year showing you were on team loser and you, you're, you're gone. So a lot, a lot of risks don't get taken. Luckily, like in a place like Third Man, where it's sort of like a sole proprietorship, yes. we do nothing but take risks all day long. Uh, everything we do is a bad business move. This is the Reform Financial Advisor Podcast. My name is Andy Flattery. I am a certified financial planner and owner of Simple Wealth Planning, a registered investment advisor. All opinions expressed by me and all of my guests are solely our own opinions and do not reflect the opinions of Simple Wealth Planning. This podcast is for informational and hopefully entertainment purposes only and should not be relied upon as investment, tax, or legal advice. Clients of Simple Wealth Planning may maintain positions in the securities discussed in this podcast. Welcome back to the podcast. Over the summer, I had a chance to appear on Brian Harrington's show called Bitcoin is Hard, the episode Take More Risks with yours truly, Andy Flattery. And and, and to open the show, Brian had this question for me about a tweet that I put out a while back. Here it is. Every episode, we have um, a segment called Explain This Tweet. Normally, I save mm-hmm. until the end, but I love your pinned tweet right now. And so we're just going to move ahead with it right here at the beginning. Andy <laughs> says, creative planning for anyone under 60 should be about building a career slash business that is uniquely suited to their skills, taking a few idiosyncratic risks, concentrating before diversifying and hoarding Bitcoins. Tell, tell us what this means. So in this podcast, I'm going to explore deeply why financial planning, as it has been popularized today, is in many ways limiting, why goal setting, as we often know it, is limiting when the objective is to achieve greatness or to reach our potential, if you will, and why one of my favorite artists of all time, Jack White of the White Stripes, provides the model on how we can design our ideal life by working to become craftsmen, by tinkering, and by taking calculated risks along the way. So here we go. So what's the problem with financial planning as it exists today, specifically in the idea of goals-based planning? Well, the problem is, you know, we as human beings, uh, one of the flawed things about us is we crave comfort and security. Um, a, A lot of things that I look back on and say, you know, that was terrible or that was very difficult in my life actually ended up being great gifts. But guess what? Those are the things that in, in those particular times, I wanted to have nothing to do with them. But, but the reality is growth comes out of difficulty and we never, we never grow out of comfortable experiences. That's, that's not the reality. We, we crave comfort, we crave security, and yet it is in discomfort that we end up growing. So let's take a look at some of the things that we see in financial advice today, some of the the messages that we get, and I'm being a little unfair with this because some of this is just sort of funny, but you'll, you'll get the idea. Talk to us about retirement today. Feel comfortable about tomorrow. Our income plan analysis is not a one size fits all approach. It is tailored to you based upon your unique situation. Just let us know your age, the amount of your retirement nest egg, and how long you'll want to wait before starting your retirement income stream. And our team of annuity experts will get to work on your custom report. 
You'd be surprised, even shocked to discover just how easy funds can run out without a solid plan in place. Don't let the clock run out and be unprepared. SC Financial Group will review your trajectory with you and provide a customized retirement analysis at no cost or obligation. So how does financial planning, financial advice sort of encourage this, um, for lack of a better word, just like wimpiness or sort of lack of a risk-taking mentality? Uh, it could be selling a product that, that will you know, just make the pain go away, just uh, buy this product and my portfolio won't go down anymore. Uh, maybe producing a, a Monte Carlo forecast that will prove that you will not run out of money in retirement. Um, that's a common one in sort of like the RIA space that I exist in. Uh, all of it is sort of geared towards the lowest common denominator objective of just being able to, usually it's about retirement, just being able to retire. And I think this is limiting and maybe even foolish in a lot of cases. So let me ask you a question. If you think of your proudest achievement, think of your proudest achievement, would you have imagined at the very beginning that the path that you took to achieving that goal or that objective would have been the path that you end up taking? And, and the answer for me is almost always um, no. <laughs> for me, it's a, it's a cliche, but, but marrying my wife, which I think is probably my proudest achievement, it, it came with the most surprising and circuitous path. And I, I, didn't, I didn't even meet her until I was 31 years old. So in retrospect... I see how the the correct choices I made led me to that moment, but it wasn't it wasn't the result of some dedicated plan. But really, it was it was a posture and a cultivation of myself as a man that resulted in that, and not some sort of plan or, or not even randomness either. In retrospect, there was there was a path, but it was a sort of a stepping stone to get there. So, a lot of this um, that I'm sharing with you, it, it's. The inspiration is a book that I read over the summer called Why Greatness Cannot Be Planned, The Myth of the Objective. The authors are Kenneth Stanley and Joel Lehman. The book makes the case that great achievement cannot be bottled up into mechanical metrics, which is how I view a lot of financial advice that exists, especially around this issue of retirement. I'm going to play with you here. Um, Kenneth Stanley, the author of the book on the Patrick O'Shaughnessy Invest Like the Best podcast. Here's Stanley. You hear things like that sometimes. The best way to find someone you love is to stop worrying about love. Or you hear these cliches sometimes. And I think that that reflects that somewhere within our culture, we recognize that there's a bit of a problem with setting goals and strictly adhering to them with this belief that that's ultimately going to cause you to get what you want. And yet, what the book is about is that we have a tendency in our culture, a strong tendency to basically design everything that we do around exactly that archetype, which is that let's set a goal, state our objective, and then let's set some kind of metrics so we can decide how close we're going to that goal. And then let's put all our effort into just moving directly in the direction of the goal. And we believe somehow that this is going to lead to all the things that we need and want to accomplish, keep us ahead of the curve, avoid disruption, all the things that we're worried about, that this is the formula basically for everything. And what the book is about is that it actually doesn't work. So I already know that 
this is probably rubbing you a lot of you the wrong way. There's probably a few high achievers listening to this right now that are bristling at this concept. And and trust me, we're, we're going to get into the concept of what value goals do, pro- do provide and what the alternative is, because this is not about sort of randomness and this is not some sort of like um, um, excuse for not achieving great things. And so trust me, we'll get to that. But let me share with you here a little bit more about what uh, Stanley perceives as the problem with goal setting as we think of it today. This goes all the way from like a personal level where you have goals in your life, which have been set since you were very young and encouraged by your parents and the educational system, all the way up to institutions like corporations and top of the government itself. Like all of these institutions and individuals are using goal setting as sort of the one heuristic for getting to high level achievement. And so the book tries to both say, okay, here's why this is something we shouldn't believe in with such confidence that we do. And what are some of the alternatives? Since that's sort of like the natural next question, because it seems almost like then there's nothing I can do, or the only thing I can do is just be random. And that's not really the case. There are alternatives, which is why serendipity does happen. Chance favors the prepared mind. So, so if you think about it, what where goals play a role is if it's very sort of actionable and very achievable in the short run. If you need to buy a car, uh, save up the money and buy a car. If you if you want to save a million dollars, if you want to save for retirement, that is very much achievable. Save up the money, invest the money, and you can achieve those things. If you want to buy a house figure out the steps to buy a house and go out and do that. Um, what, what, what this is more about though, is um, this is more about achieving potential, achieving greatness. And it's about, you know, even like a more broadly speaking, high-minded idea is reaching our potential as men. What I'm talking about is more related to things like innovation and discovery and disruption, blue sky stuff. Some extreme examples of things like cure cancer or achieve artificial general intelligence super ambitious things, but even things that aren't as ambitious as those would fall under this category. Basically stuff where we just don't know how to do it, which is a huge, huge range of things that are very important to us. Things like bringing down inflation or something like that. So that's not the same as like curing cancer, but the problem is that we don't know what exactly the stepping stones are that lie along that path to doing those things. And as soon as that's true, where the stepping stones are mysterious, especially if there's several of them that we have to go through on the road to where we want to go, then this principle that I'm talking about, which I might call the myth of the objective, or you call it the objective paradox, where it's like setting an objective actually hurts your ability to get to it. So that's a paradox. Then it starts to come into play with those kinds of things. I've had a chance to meet a number of successful people that have achieved worldly success in in business throughout my career. And, and one thing almost all of them love to do is to tell their story One that I remember in particular, Kansas City has one of the preeminent sports architecture firms in the world. And I had a chance to meet a few of the founders once who helped popularize, what would you call it? It was like the neo-traditional movement in baseball stadiums that you saw in the 1990s. These were architects that did like Coors Field, which was built in the early 1990s. If you've ever been to Coors, it looks like it was built. 80 years ago, but it was built in the early 1990s. And, um, and that became very, very popular. I think Baltimore did it. Um, other um, cities built uh, stadiums like that. And it was all done by this, this firm out of Kansas City called Populous. And anyway, 
Um, since that time, this particular firm has expanded into you know really every market. They've done soccer stadiums, football stadiums, arenas, you name it. But that is what their major claim to fame was in the beginning. And and the way when I've chatted with these founders, the way they tell the story is that it was purely accidental how they stumbled on this concept of the sort of traditional looking baseball stadium, and it and it just took off and. And that usually seems to be the case. It usually seems like there's there seems to be something sort of accidental about it, but it was like small risks, tinkering, little innovations here and there that led to a massive breakthrough, which was the case for these Kansas City architects here a few decades ago. Now, in Bitcoin, this point is made often when it's pointed out that Toshi did not exist in a vacuum. And the innovation that Satoshi came up with with the, with the Bitcoin white paper was sort of the grand combination of a number of inventions, a number of innovations that were the result of him sort of standing on the shoulders of giants. So you think about like public key cryptography, which I believe was invented in the 1970s by Ralph Merkel. Maybe a decade later, Ralph Merkel, Merkel invented the Merkel tree, which was invented in the 80s. And then in the early 2000s, one of my favorite cypherpunks for the little I know of the cypherpunks, Nick Zabo, invented proof of work. And there was a number of other innovations that sort of culminated in uh, Satoshi Nakamoto in 2008 releasing Bitcoin. And that was, you know, the, the sort of one uh, cryptocurrency project that finally seemed to work. And so we think about this idea of stepping stones, even something like Bitcoin. Here, um, here Stanley is making the, uh, the case for how computers came to be. And computers only exist because of um, an innovation that was invented hundreds of years earlier in the vacuum tube. We got together the best minds. They just put their effort into it. They build this thing. It just happened. That's just the story of human achievement. What a great thing we should all celebrate. But the thing is, you're leaving something out. We're leaving something out in those kinds of allegories. There was stuff that happened before that. The story doesn't start where it starts. And that makes the story extremely misleading because that's not actually the story. Because there were things that we needed to build that computer. Just as there were things we needed to build the space shuttle and so forth, all your favorite stories of human achievement, airplanes, you know, what have you, it'd be the same kind of thing. But just focus on the computer, the thing that we needed, one very key thing is a vacuum tube. Now, today, computers aren't made out of vacuum tubes, but in the 1940s, the first computers had vacuum tubes in them. The first ones that actually worked and were used and produced, not mass produced, but produced and actually used for purposes, they had vacuum tubes. And so the thing that really made it possible to have this narrative about like, oh, this, this amazing visionary was the fact that somebody already had invented vacuum tubes. What is a vacuum tube? I don't even know what that is. A vacuum tube is a kind of electrical device. In the early computers, it was used as like a small unit of computation. Early on, they were trying to understand properties of like electrical devices in general. They weren't thinking about using it for computers at all. It allowed people to understand what you can do with electricity. And it goes back to, I believe, the 1700s basically like glass tubes with vacuums where they could run electrical currents through them and learn about their properties. And if you go back to those times, which is going actually hundreds of years before you get to computers, what you find, I think, is very interesting, which is that you find people who are interested in electrical properties who were not thinking about computers. But these people are an essential part of the story of computation. That's the part that's left out of the narrative. 
the hero of the story is partly the vacuum tube researcher, but the vacuum tube researcher has not a single thought about computation. And this is where we should get worried again. Because if you go back in time, go back to the year 1850, roughly around 100 years earlier, before the first computers, the ENIAC computer, you can find these people who are doing that work. And what we could imagine like a thought experiment here where we could approach those people because they're super smart. They're kind of like the hackers of the day. So we can go to those people and we could say, you're doing something interesting, granted, but there's actually something much more interesting you could be doing, which is you could build a computer. What the heck are you doing with this boring vacuum tube stuff? Let's build something like a computer. Like I can tell you a little bit about what the vision of the computer is. Now, why don't you think about that instead? Like, let's get you guys together and do that. And if you think about this thought experiment, it would be a horrible thing to do because you just pulled all the people off the stepping stone that you needed. I have to mention here, by the way, as an Iowa State cyclone, that the first vacuum tube computer was the Atanasoff Berry computer invented in Ames, Iowa. And as a cyclone, we're very proud of that. If you, um, if you ever read that book, Cryptonomicon by Neil Stevenson, he, um, he has Atanasoff, the Atanasoff computer at the, very, at the very beginning of the book. It's like a historical fiction. And the author, Neil Stevenson, is actually from Ames. So you'll notice that uh, if you read any of his books, he always throws in these little Iowa references from his childhood um, in his novels. So got to give credit here to Ames, Iowa and the Adonassoff computer. So what does all of this mean for us? That's the obvious question. What, what should we do? What is the alternative? I like to use one of my favorite artists of all time, Jack White, as an example. I've been following Jack White for a long time. He's the founder of the White Stripes. He is a, he's a guitar player, drummer, singer, songwriter, uh, New York Times called him, quote, the, the coolest, weirdest, and savviest rocker of our time. And he, he's just an interesting dude. He's, he's an actor. He owns a record label. He owns a vinyl record pre- pressing plant, which I'm going to share with you a clip of him talking about that in a second. Uh, he owns a baseball bat company, which I love. And uh, I just bought recently his children's book for my kids. And maybe most interesting for this particular conversation is that he is an upholsterer yeah the uh my my uh upholstery shop was yellow black and white i died all the colors came from my tools and my my power saws and my hand tools upholstery hand tools and then i had bought a yellow van it was a abandoned like a, or an old used detroit fire department van and that's what i was going to do the deliveries from the furniture with and um I started to dress in yellow and black to do the deliveries and then do the bills in crayon and yellow and black crayon and the artistic side of it took what was taking over. You know. Did you own that company or were yes. you an employee? Oh, I didn't know oh, that yes. you owned the company. Yeah, when I was 21, I had a mortgage. I had my own business. I wow. was in three bands. Wow. I, I, I sometimes wonder, like, people must have thought I was really maybe crazy or insane or something. Because now, if you saw, like, if you, know, if you had a 21-year-old son that was doing all that, they'd be like, wow, oh, my God, how can I help you? Can I, you know, blah, 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 or pat on the back or whatever. I never heard anything like that from adults saying, oh, that's great you're doing that. Oh, that's amazing you're doing that. Never heard anything like that. And um, were now when not, I look Were back, they just not paying bizarre. attention? Or what do you think? Why? That's why, yeah, I think maybe they just kind of thought like, doing oh, he's, thing? Weird, he's weird. And I mean, he, or he thinks he has a company or something. He yeah. probably doesn't really. Or I don't know. I don't know what they were thinking. Strange. 
most upholstery companies mm-hmm. don't have colors associated with those, them right, either. Yeah. What do you think triggered that idea? If I had to pick one moment, there was a moment of, uh, I watched this uh, special on counterfeiting and they talked about this uh, Dutch designer and I don't know how to pronounce his name. It's like O.J. Oxenar, but he had designed this uh, currency that the five and the 10 and the 20 dollar bills. I don't know the name of their currency over there, but it was, you know, this was purple was the five and blue was the 10 and and red was the 20. And you knew exactly what you had in your hands just by looking at it without looking at the number. And I just really, that was really inspiring to me. Like, oh, instantly to know what something is instantaneously without having to have it written on the screen or written across your t-shirt. So everything I had to do with third man uh, upholstery was going to be yellow, black, and white, and center around the number three as well. Third Man was the name of the upholstery company as yes, well? Yes, Third Man Upholstery. Yeah. Where did that name come from originally for the upholstery company? That's a long uh, answer, but it, but it, it's a... Uh, I was actually the third upholsterer on my street. Uh, there was an old guy named Klomp, and then the guy next door to me, Brian Muldoon, and then I was the third one. Also, the street was called Ferdinand Street. Ferdinand's a third. Ferdinand, yeah. third man. And I was also obsessed with the number three. And also Orson Welles was my biggest idol at that moment, especially. Yeah. Uh, so all of this came around. Yeah, third man. Yeah, your furniture is not dead was the, on my business card. Great. Was the slogan. <laughs> which now with third man records, it's your turntable's not dead. And wow. so, yeah. So you basically keep um, retreading the same old tired ideas from yeah. childhood. <laughs> oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. It never goes away. That's great. Yeah. So that got transferred over to the White Stripes, which was instead of yellow, black, and white, it was red, black, and white. So isn't that interesting? The guy that's probably best known is the Seven Nation Army guy. You know, The song that's played at every college football game, even today, is someone that still thinks of himself as an upholsterer, or at least started his career as a tradesman. And, uh, you know, if, if you would have done like the goal setting plan with a uh, 19-year-old Jack White or something like that, it probably wasn't in the cards for him to be the Jack White of today. I think later on he talks about he always thought of himself as someone that would have an upholstery business and then would play music in the various bands that he played in on the weekends. But, but what happened was the seeds that he planted ended up bearing fruit. So step number one in following this model is to be a craftsman, find something that you enjoy doing that you want to be great at and and keep the best parts of it throughout your life, throughout your career. Your unique experiences are, are your own and they can't be replicated. So in this example with Jack White, you know, it's sort of like an odd thing, like this rocker still thinks of himself as like an upholsterer, a, a business he started when he was 19 years old, but he, he carries these little pieces of it with him throughout his life. And he, you know, in a way he's always an upholsterer. So the second step is have a broad perspective and be curious. A lot of um, artists and writers and guitar players and drummers and stuff, they, they don't, uh, have a much depth in their history or, or love of music or anything. And so what? Who cares? Yeah. And then there's people that do. And then there's guys who are like, you know, super nerdy and obscure and, and way, go way too deep, you know, and have, have lost the beauty of music of, uh, through the minutia of it, you know. Mm-hmm. I've always tried to keep, you know, one foot in and out of that world if I can. Mm-hmm. I like to know a little bit about amplifiers, but not how to fix them. I like to know a little bit about this genre of music, but not enough where it swallows me up and I become obsessed with only that. And it, so it gets me the ability to do this and that. Even 
engineering and production and stuff, I try not to really get too hands-on because I know how I am. I could get in there and become a knob jockey guy who all he does is worry about the levels of compression and stuff rather than keeping half of my brain in the world, being able to create songs and and, and write and, and perform them and all that stuff. And it's been a pretty good balance. I've, I've kept a pretty good balance over the years of trying not to get too involved in one aspect of it. I get jealous at times when you see people like, oh, wow, he's just a guitar player. Oh, yeah. that would be nice. Or that's just a producer or just a singer. Even the word justice sounds like it's an insult, but it's not to me. It's no. like I'm jealous of it because it's like, wow, it'd be great. You could just concentrate on that one thing. Yeah. You could get really, really good at that. Yeah. You know, if that's your, yeah. if you did one thing. But um, at the end of the day, I'm, I'm lucky that my brain wants to be active in these different spots. And uh, so I, I'm, I'm happy about it. I feel good about it. Now, to be clear, one of the things I'm not saying is to um, is to sort of reject the division of labor entirely and try to be like Robinson Crusoe on your island or your homestead or something like that and um, just sort of recreate society on your own little island. I don't think that's wise, and I don't think that this is what the lesson is here with um, Jack White. I think he's just... He just has a broad amount of interests that allow him to have a unique perspective on these different businesses that he's he's in, and it's allowing him to have success that is all his own. It, it's very much um, it's very much true to him. In other words, he's not like a hipster. He's not like oh, I, I never want to be popular because. The only thing that's po- the only things that are popular. The only music that's popular is music that sucks. But on the other hand, he's not like a, a corporate sellout that just sort of falls in line with what you would have ex- would expect of a rock star. He's very much figured out how to do this on his own terms, and that's one of the things I really admire about this Jack White model. You know, he, he's a tinkerer that tinkers with these various interests that he has and sees which of them sort of resonate uh, with people, resonate in the marketplace, you can say. And one of those interests that ended up doing very well for Jack White was his record label and his vinyl printing press, which from my understanding is sort of one of the last places on the planet where you can uh, print brand new vinyl records, like old school um, vinyl records today. And um, in this next piece I'm going to play for you, he's, he's talking about why his label is like the only place that's doing it and they're willing to take the risks to do it. And this is a, a result of Jack White tinkering and a, and a result of him taking calculated risks. So step number three, take calculated risks and reject the comfort of this world. So knowing about supply and demand, we see there's tremendous demand to have these things made. Yeah. Yeah. Why have not all the companies who are making all these things, why have they not retooled? And I think that, I think uh, it comes down to probably people, my guess would yeah. be people who, who are on the boards of, of those major labels, yeah. which I, I've been pleading to them to be rebuild their pressing plants again. I think they really need to do it. It's in their best interest. And I think they will make a lot of money doing yeah. it and help the artists in lots of big ways. But I think what it is, it's a little bit in their mind. Like if you were in a board meeting and you want to be the guy to, to champion this idea, we should build a pressing plant. You're taking a big risk yes. of being on a losing team that yes, year yes. if it doesn't work out and you will lose your job. So I think that's what a, that's probably the number one problem with corporations yeah. is people don't want to be on a losing team yeah. and get their evaluation at the end of the year showing you were on team loser and you're, you're gone. 
So a lot, a lot of risks don't get taken. Luckily, like in a place like Third Man, where it's sort of like a sole proprietorship, yes, we do nothing but take risks all day long. Uh, everything we do is a bad business move. Yes. And in the end of the day, somehow it all makes sense and we, we're, we pay the bills with it somehow. I should mention, by the way, that the other voice you hear on that clip is Rick Rubin, the famous producer, and this is Jack White appearing on his podcast. Is there no feeling that you can expand drastically and open up pressing plants all over the country and you do what they're not doing? I'm in a debate about that. I mean, right now, at the pace that we're at with 12 presses that I have, I'm looking at right now probably another eight years before I get all my money back that I put into this place. So... Is it, is it a every really... time you get a dollar, you kind of want to put that dollar back into the plant yeah. and buy another press. Yeah. But then it just keeps extending yeah, this yeah, time yeah. period yeah. Of, of actually breaking even, which I guess who cares? Yeah. Uh, on one side of my brain, I get who cares? Another side of my brain, it kind of feels negative. But I think what a lot of people do is not what I'm doing, where I use my own money to fund all this stuff. Yes. They would really just get a lot of other investors, mm-hmm. and I would just own 10% of the company or something, and they would all get the profits or something like that. But I don't think it's not that kind of a profitable business, you know, where we're selling pizza or T-shirts or something, where is it easy to sell to somebody? Yeah, this is but easy money. But it's something that you're uh, an advocate for. It's different. It's, mm. it's like it's got, yeah. it's not, it's not, the beauty is it's not pizza. So it's worth pointing out that Jack White having savings, obviously a guy having a few bucks, is allowing him to do this stuff, to to do all these projects in a way that he would not be able to do otherwise. And so for regular people, let this be a lesson on the importance of something like Bitcoin, right, where it makes savings relevant again. To use another metaphor or another example besides Jack White, if Jack White is not exactly your guy, um, I always say people, should, or maybe men, should try to be more like MacGyver with, with your finances, where you know MacGyver was always ready for, for anything. He had the duct tape, he had the pocket knife, and he had um, the MacGyver brain, which was um, uh, his brilliance and sort of his... Um, combined experiences that allowed him to sort of be able to react to any situation. And, you know, if you, if you remember MacGyver, maybe I'm dating myself here for, for Gen Z, but MacGyver, a MacGyver episode was always a self-contained adventure. You know, there was never any grand plan or grand narrative with it with MacGyver. Every episode was just a different Russian spy that um, MacGyver had to best and um, another bomb that he had to figure out how to defuse. And MacGyver was always prepared. So the way that that we can beat MacGyver is sort of leveling up our finances today to start to to create savings right now by increasing our savings rate, by increasing our income. And creating optionality in the future in case, you know, you get attacked by a Russian spy or you have to defuse a bomb. The, the savings are going to give you optionality to be able to handle um, adversity and also be able to, to take advantage of opportunities when they present themselves. Um, you know, and when you're someone like Jack White, there are many opportunities that present themselves. But in a way, we're all like Jack White where we have opportunities that present themselves and we're all, you know, we all have MacGyver situations where we have these maybe minor tragedies um, where we have to learn how to deal with it. And, you know, our, our, our savings, our nest egg, if you will, uh, maybe even things like insurance at times are the version of the MacGyver brain and the 
duct tape and the pocket knife. And, you know, being MacGyver, like that's just like a posture, right? Like there was MacGyver had no plan. He had, he had short term plans on sort of how to get out of these situations. But, you know, what does this mean for something like starting a business, which is maybe the, um, the natural conclusion to a lot of this conversation, what, who should start a business? What are the limits to starting a business? How do you know that this is the sort of this is sort of the, the step that you should be taking. Well, our approach will probably need to be tempered by reality more so than a celebrity like Jack White, because reality should be answering the question. Number one, does this, does the money matter here? Uh, would I do this even if I never made a dollar? And if not, I think the lesson is don't quit your day job until the market is giving you feedback that you can. Here is some sensible advice from, Cal Newport, who is a a commentator that has a lot of sensible advice. Money acting as a neutral indicator of value is a term that I borrowed from the entrepreneur Derek Sivers. Now, the concept here is the way you de-risk a change in your career, especially a change, let's say, from a, a, a steady paycheck job to an entrepreneurial vision, is that you look to see if you can make money on the new thing. You don't ask people, is this a good idea? You don't ask people, do you think I should go out on my own and start this business? You don't just look to your gut and say, what's my passion or what do I feel like doing? You instead on the side, start doing to a reduced degree, the thing you are considering and see if people will give you money. Because here's the thing. It costs me nothing to tell you something's a good idea. It costs me nothing to compliment you. It costs me nothing to, to get you fired up about going big and betting on yourself. That costs me nothing. And I'll just do that. Why not? I'm a nice guy. I don't want to be mean to you. But you want my money. Now, that's different. People are different about that. They're not going to give you their money <clears throat> unless they actually value what they're getting. Step number four in following the, let's call it the Jack White model, is don't retire, uh, just pivot. If you find something that you enjoy doing that provides value to others, you're getting feedback that it provides value to others, you found significance, um, don't quit. Why would you quit doing that? So everyone keeps asking, you know, these, these questions about like, well, so, you know, where are things going to be for you, you know, when you're, you know, 60 years old and 80 years old. And I just keep saying like, it's really nice. It's a nice position to be in to have, you know, Bob and Neil and Tom Waits have already proven there's these things that can happen and, and can continue. Yeah. Because I remember, you know, when I was 12 and the Rolling Stones were 40 and everyone was like, oh my God, can yeah, you believe the Rolling Stones? Are, yeah. And um, it's, it's so nice that you guys are able to sort of prove that. To, what do you think, Rick? What's your opinion about like hip hop guys when, when they're 80? You know? You never know. I what mean, do you, pe- yeah. people like hearing the songs. You know, yeah, people, exactly. They'll be doing something. Yeah. If, you know, if they got the spirit, they'll be cranking something out. Yeah, exactly. Because, yeah. you know, what, what else can we do when we get right down to it? Yeah, yeah, yeah. There's really nothing. <laughs> so in summary, step number one, be a craftsman. Find something that you want to be great at. Step number two, have a broad perspective, be curious. Step number three, take risks and be a tinkerer. And step number four, don't retire, pivot throughout your career.
It's not even just about things we want to accomplish. It's about things that we don't know we want to accomplish, but we would want to if we knew they could even be possible. That could be what you're going to do in your life. Like you may create something, come up with some idea that like you weren't even aware was something worth trying to do, but turns out to be awesome. Um, and so all these things like fall under the umbrella of, of this idea. Okay. So how should you, how should you conduct yourself? It seems like a lot of people jump immediately to the word random. Basically, you're just saying, I should just be random. It's like, I'm going to cry. Like, this sounds terrible. I don't want to be random. I'm like a smart guy. I can do things for intentional reasons. And I just want to start just to say, like, this is not suggesting that anybody should just act randomly. That's not a good strategy, obviously. It's not an alternative strategy at all. It's just as dumb as the original strategy. But let's acknowledge, though, that the original strategy is also dumb. So this is the pivot that you have to do, I think, when you're talking about innovation. You have to understand that a successful inventor, somebody who gets to places that we haven't gotten before, is somebody who's open-minded and willing to keep a repertoire of stepping stones around without knowing which one is going to be the payoff. You have to drop this idea that there's this one thing, which is the goal, and we're going to have this metric-based assessment thing, and we're always going to be moving towards it. It just didn't work. But you can be principled if you're trying to maximize opportunity to have some kind of success, even though we don't know what that success will be. Guys, when I'm working on episodes like this, I'm trying to, I'm trying to follow my own idea here and tinker and provide something that doesn't yet exist in the world. It's a little different. It's probably even a little weird at times in the vein of, of Jack White. Let's be honest. He's a little weird too. Um, so if any of this resonates with you, I could use feedback. Um, I'm not asking for your money. I'm not asking for your sats unless you want to boost me on a podcasting 2.0 enabled app like Fountain or just send me an email. Andy at simplewealthkc.com is my email. And thanks again for sticking out to the end of this episode. And we'll see you next time on the Reform Financial Advisor. You might not know what to do You might have to think of how you got 